order to honor the victims and hopefully honor those who lost dear loved ones, we're going to spend a moment to uh, read out the names of each person whose life was prematurely taken, whose life was precious in the eyes of God, with hopes and dreams, layers of backgrounds, stories, and who left families and loved ones devastated because of what had happened to them. Xiao Jie Tan, I'm owner of one of the businesses and mother to a daughter. Hun Jung Grant, single mother of two boys. Dao Yu Feng, Sun Jung Park, Sun Ja Kim, Young E Yu, Elena Ashley Young, who was recently married and a mother to a 13 year old son and eight month old daughter, and Paul Andre Michaels, a former Army infantryman who owned a business installing security systems and was doing work for one of the businesses. We don't have the information for every single person, and so we're working off of the limited information we have at the time of speaking their names. March 28th will mark Palm Sunday, and at a 4 p.m. vigil, churches will be remembering those killed. Gatherings organized by the Asian American Christian Collaborative, seeking to create a space to grieve, to show solidarity with Asian Americans around the country. And while each event is different, all will have one message, stop the hate. The vigils taking place in Atlanta, Dallas, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Baltimore are among the hundreds of vigils that have been organized around the country by community-based groups and individuals who simply felt called to remember those who've been slain. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. The Asian American community is incredibly diverse, and that includes religious affiliations, identities, and practices. In 2012, the Pew Research Center published Asian Americans, a Mosaic of Faith. Now, although this report is almost a decade old, it offers a vivid portrait of a diverse set of practices and beliefs of Asian Americans, a group, I might add, that includes nearly 23 million people across the United States and territories, including myself. The title Mosaic is appropriate when you look at the major subgroups. For example, while half of Indian Americans identify as Hindu and a plurality of Vietnamese Americans identify as Buddhist, Among Japanese Americans, we see a mix of Christians, Buddhists, and the unaffiliated. But there is one religious tradition that stands out in this report. The number of Asian Americans who identify as Christian. 
42%. But even here, there are differences. Across the group's affiliation under that big tent of Christianity varies widely. While a majority of Filipinos identify as Catholic, Korean Americans identify as Protestant. But regardless of ethnic origin or denominational affiliation, one shared experience is bringing Asian American Christians together. One of our friends posted something on his Facebook wall about anti-Asian racism. And then he got a comment from a Christian church leader, called him a snowflake. And then we just decided we need to do something about it. The first person I thought of was Michelle. And uh, we just expanded this group uh, that started as a Facebook chat. And overnight, it grew to a thousand people. And then it grew into a Facebook group. That's Raymond Chang from our first conversation in July of 2020. It was the middle of the pandemic, and as anti-Asian sentiments were growing, both he and organizers were stunned to see that sentiment creeping into a place they least expected, their church communities. Now, by July, Chang, who's based in Chicago, and Michelle Ami Reyes, who's Indian-American and based in Austin, Texas, the two had turned their chats into a Facebook group, and then began organizing and networking with Asian-American Christians around the country. And their first call to action was a sign-on statement. Hoping to raise awareness of their goals, they used it to reach out across denominations, inviting fellow Christians to speak out. Signatures quickly appeared. Here's Reyes reading the opening of that first statement. We, the undersigned, join together as Asian-American Christians and community leaders to denounce the current rise in overt anti-Asian racism throughout our country. And we called for an immediate end to xenophobic rhetoric, hate crimes, and violence against our people and communities and invited all Americans to join us. And we did this first because we we were seeing uh, that more of our, our friends were experiencing racism across the spectrum and were, were being denied uh, that reality. They were being called snowflakes or, or other terms, basically saying, uh, we either don't believe you that, that you're experiencing this, or uh, the type of racism you're experiencing is, is probably not that bad. So it's best that you just stop talking about it. And so we wanted to elevate these experiences, um, give validity and highlight them. But we also wanted to to equip and empower our own community to recognize the ways in which we have perpetuated racism in different ways, the sort of um, anti-blackness and colorism that we have embodied as we call out anti-Asian racism for fellow Asian Americans to seek opportunities for solidarity with other ethnic and racial minorities so that we can advocate together. Because the last thing we wanted to do was to say, hey, our house is burning. You know, we need help while not recognizing that Asian Americans haven't always done well at caring for other people's houses when they've been burning. The group began as a way to amplify concerns and educate, resisting the activism rhetoric of a lot of secular groups. Instead, they sought to create a space for evangelicals to call each other into this fellowship, and as Reyes points out, to do that work internally as well with Asian Americans on issues of anti-Black racism and confronting how Asian Americans, too, have been racialized in what some, like Isabel Wilkerson, describe as America's caste system. Their efforts have continued as reporting shows bias incidents have soared. 
According to researchers with Stop the Hate, nearly 4,000 self-reported hate crimes have been documented, with more than 500 taking place in 2021. And in all that data, there is a deeply disturbing trend of who is targeted. According to researchers and law enforcement, women and the elderly are increasingly the targets of violent encounters. And houses of worship associated with Asian Americans are now reporting incidents of vandalism. As news broke of the targeting of three Asian American businesses in Georgia by a gunman, local Korean community media reported accounts not covered in mainstream media, including eyewitnesses from one of the businesses stating that the suspect now in custody yelled, kill all Asians. Now, as criticisms of law enforcement leaders in Cherokee County grew, as the press statements amplified the suspect's defense, claiming that he was having a bad day and was struggling with a sex addiction, and highlighting his membership in a local church. Asian-American advocates and journalists began to cry foul as media outlets resisting naming the killing and targeting of Asian-American businesses and Asian-American women as a hate crime. And that included the leaders of the Asian-American Christian Collaborative. I talked to Raymond from his home in Chicago earlier this week by Zoom. He is exhausted, operating on two hours of sleep, and I quickly found out on little food. Let me do a quick sound check. Can I ha- to have you tell me what you had for breakfast? I didn't eat. I haven't eaten pretty much for the week. Chang is taking every invitation extended to build awareness and find partners. Shortly before we spoke, he was doing a radio interview with Moody Christian Broadcasting. What we're trying to do is basically get the word out and anyone that will listen to us and hear us and, and stand with us, you know, those are the people that we're trying to reach. What happens to one of us really does happen to all of us. We're all tied together in a garment of mutuality. You mentioned that there is a lot of support for former President Trump coming from conservative white evangelical churches. I'm wondering if the events and the tragedy from March 16th has led to greater outreach from organizations and leaders who are not the regular voices speaking out. There's been a greater awakening around the problems that uh, the former president Donald Trump has caused for Christians and for Christian witness. And still, I mean, we know that many white evangelicals still support, you know, Donald Trump. And and we're hoping that they would see the harm that he's done to uh, not just our community, but many other communities uh, in the process, especially women and Asian Americans. Can you describe what you're organizing on Palm Sunday? I've been working with local Christian leaders in uh, in a variety of cities, but first in Atlanta, and we're convening to stand for AAPI Lives and Dignity and uh, to stand against uh, anti-Asian hate. We will be uh, connecting at 4 p.m. Uh, in Atlanta, and we also have other cities that are currently planning for a synchronous gathering in Los Angeles, in New York, in Chicago, and potentially some other cities. We do hope that for something as egregious as what we have seen in the last couple of months with, with five Asian Americans uh, being killed, and then with Atlanta uh, and, and the shootings that took place there, where eight people uh, were killed, uh, six of whom were Asian women, that there would be a more unified and a more stronger uh, voice to condemn uh, the things that have led to this. Because, I mean, what we do know is that uh, the, the shooter was discipled and grew up in a white evangelical Southern Baptist church. 
And there are sects within the Southern Baptist Church that have uh, attitudes and dispositions that would seem very similar to potentially lead to things like this, even though they would condemn it outright and say this has nothing to do with our views. What we've seen in terms of attitudes of race is that conservative-leaning Christians who are seeking to promote a colorblindness that doesn't interrogate the ways that white supremacy has been a part of the fabric of this country and the church within the country. And so we're hoping that there's some level of repentance, that there's some level of awareness that grows within the communities, but also that, you know, what we're trying to do is, is work with those um, who are are willing to work with us as well. You're calling fellow Christians to repent. What is the response? We've already gotten uh, national support from Christian leaders all throughout the country, including the president of the National Association for Evangelicals, the NAE, Walter Kim, uh, Nikki Toyamasito, who is the executive director for Christians for Social Action, uh, Eugene Cho, who helped draft the statement for Bread for the World, seminary presidents, uh, founder of Sojourners, Jim Wallace, uh, and the president, Adam Taylor. I mean, so we have a broad range of support. As you describe that call for repentance, it, it takes me to the statement in which the first request that you're asking calling Christians and church leaders to confess a failure to disciple congregants out of Christian nationalism and to specifically address dehumanizing and objectifying falsehoods about women and racially minoritized groups. And when you talk about colorblindness as an ethos that fosters or creates space for, for those types of attitudes to grow, is that something that you would describe as a problem that evangelical churches are addressing? Do you think that March 16th has has galvanized and and led to kind of this internal reflection? I think with some more so, right? I mean, there are more white congregations that I've seen engaged in the work than I've seen before, but there's also a surge of resistance from some white congregations because they feel like Talking about race is the agenda of Marxism or uh, critical race theory or socialism or, I mean, you just name it. And anytime uh, white supremacy has been challenged in the, in the history of our country, of the United States, one of the things that we find is that, you know, that there is a significant uprise in resistance. And sadly, a section of the kind of conservative white evangelical church thinks that by ignoring issues of race and by saying that race isn't a thing or a factor, um, that they don't see how that's harmful. Racialization is the creation of a framework where there is a dominant race and then every other race is subdominant. But then how the dominant race chooses to perceive and stereotype and typecast all of the subdominant racial groups is the process of racialization. And so African-Americans are oftentimes considered to be dangerous and to be a threat and to be violent. Asians are racialized to be quiet, submissive, to put our heads down, to never complain, to never raise our voice. And especially for Asian women to be exotic, to be fetishized and to be objectified. So Asian women are racialized in a sexualized way to be perceived as as essentially objects for male pleasure. When you organize the Asian American Christian Collaborative with co-founder Michelle Ami Reyes, did you ever imagine that you'd be in this place? No, I mean, 
like, I just want to live a simple life, a quiet life with my wife and, you know, with my, with my friends and family, but you know, like, I, I, and I'm not the first person to join in this, in this fight or to join in this kind of effort, but I think we need more voices to be a part of it. And one of the things that we're finding is that Asian American Christians and uh, evangelical Christians and Christians in general are are in need of theologies that can contend with the realities that we're facing that are consistent with the scriptures. Unfortunately, because of kind of deeper commitments to whiteness and white supremacy, uh, misogyny and chauvinism sometimes, and the ways that those have gone uninterrogated, it almost seems like Christianity has nothing meaningful to say about this stuff. But that's absolutely not true. There is a systematic theology that comes out of the black liberation theology, uh, feminist liberation theology. There, There is. And this is what's hard is that, you know, sometimes the evangelical theological commitments are tainted by the evangelical political commitments because the political uh, force of the moral majority really shaped and discipled the imaginations of so many people, uh, especially evangelicals and more specifically white evangelicals. But there are sufficient resources within the historic Christian church, like even the simple belief that we're all made in the image of God, that whether you believe in Jesus or you don't believe in Jesus, whether you follow Jesus or you don't, that you are a precious bearer of God's image, that you are made to his delight. But there's such a blindness because people don't know how to navigate race, because people don't even know how to navigate issues of of sexism and the sexualized racism that we see that, that has led to the events in Atlanta. Raymond Chang is the president and co-founder of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. He's a writer and pastor serving as campus minister at Wheaton College and lives in the Chicagoland area. Dr. Michelle Amireyes is the vice president and co-founder of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. In addition to her activism, she's a church planter. She, along with her husband, co-planted Hope Community Church a minority-led, multicultural house of worship that serves low-income and disadvantaged communities in East Austin, Texas. Coming up, historian Julie Ingersoll offers context on what sexual addiction may mean in evangelical circles. In the evangelical subculture, there are such strong restrictions on expressions of sexuality that most people can't even comprehend. So it's not just about committing adultery. It's about having lustful thoughts. So your very mind itself is at war with you. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. 
And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you are just joining, we began this week's episode with Raymond Chang, the president and co-founder of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. Earlier this week, the collective issued a statement calling on Christians to preach and teach against anti-Asian racism and to denounce the murders on March 16th as a massacre. The statement calls Christians and church leaders to, quote, confess our own failure to disciple our congregants out of Christian nationalism and to stem dehumanizing and objectifying falsehoods about women and racially minoritized groups in our country. As of this recording, the organization has gathered over 3,000 signatures from faith and lay leaders across the country. And they're not alone. Religious denominations and faith communities are issuing statements, expressing solidarity, and organizing vigils with a message, stop the hate. They are also calling for an understanding that the rise in anti-Asian violence is not new, but has long roots in American history. There is also a growing interest in the role of religion, specifically conservative theology. News reports from the New York Times and Religion News Service cited that the shooter was religious and professed to be a Christian who was recently baptized at the Crabapple Baptist Church, where he was a member until this past Sunday, when the church removed him from their membership roster. The shooter's statements to police citing sex addiction and a desire to reduce temptation brought increased scrutiny to the extreme abstinence movement known as purity culture. Religious studies scholar Julie Ingersoll wrote about the religious cultural phenomena that extols extreme abstinence as a spiritual value. To learn more, I spoke with Ingersoll earlier this week from her home in Tallahassee, Florida. Ingersoll begins by discouraging attempts to disentangle the motives. the efforts to separate out whether this is a racial hate or ethnic hate crime from his assertion that it's a sex addiction, I think that that has led to us misreading what actually is happening in ways that are really important because I think most people don't understand what these conservative evangelicals mean when they say that they have a sex addiction because this is in no way separable from a hate crime against women, or in this particular case, a hate crime against Asian Americans. When you read the word sex addiction, what are you reading? Because you just said that if you don't know evangelical culture, if you don't know the history of the relationship and view of women and sexuality through an evangelical lens, you may miss what that term means. What what does it mean? Yes, and it's one of those terms that has another meaning. So you don't even realize you've missed it, right? I think that mental health professionals 
are somewhat skeptical about whether this can really be considered an addiction, um, but that is actually outside my lane. <laughs> so I, I'm not gonna weigh in on whether it's real or not real or what, but there is a thing out there in the world called sex addiction. And there are 12 step programs that are like Alcoholics Anonymous that work dealing with people who believe they have sex addiction. And there are many people who believe this is a thing. Okay, we'll set that aside. In the evangelical subculture, there are such strong restrictions on expressions of sexuality that most people can't even comprehend. So it's not just about committing adultery. It's about um, having lustful thoughts. So your very mind itself is at war with you. In fact, there's um, one of these purity culture books is called Every Young Man's Battle, right? So there's this perception that Christians are literally at war with their physicality with regard to sex. And so anytime they, quote unquote, fall into sin, um, which might mean visiting a prostitute, but it might mean, I, I have a specific example. Someone I was interviewing, talking to me about being in a garage, having their car repaired, and there was a poster on the wall that wasn't porn exactly, right? It was objectifying and all of that, but it was just a pinup poster. And he looked at it. And he experiences deep self-condemnation over having his eyes averted to this poster, right? So you have to look at it in the context of this really um, powerful construct in which a person is brought to experience themselves as utterly depraved, often over issues of sexuality. And in that context, when somebody who uses pornography or visits sex workers or whatever they're doing in that realm, they label themselves as sex addicts. And often it's, it's a way in which men get let off the hook in these kinds of communities. So the responsibility for preventing lust falls on the women as part of this purity culture. And the, the men are given this out and they'll go to these Christian-based counseling centers to deal with their sex addiction. And then they are treated as though everything is fine. And it, it does end up being perceived as the women's fault for being um, temptresses. So now you're starting to hear the stuff that was going on in this context. So he perceived these Asian women, not as women, not as people, but as temptations, <laughs> temptations that he could reasonably eliminate. And that is embedded in America's long history of eroticizing Asian women, sexualizing women in general, and then blaming the women for the ways in which the men act out. And you have all of this in the context of what, what has become called purity culture. You're talking about a construct in which women are not viewed as human beings that are able to express themselves without consequence. You're talking about uh, an environment in which there is an ideological message to young men and older men, I imagine, just men, that the impulse, the sexual attraction that they may feel, the emotional responses, the physical responses they may have to stimulation are outside of their control and that the people who are responsible are women, but those women are not seen as having the same dignity or the same no, sense no. of agency. I appreciate you weaving that together because I think that when we hear 
the echoing of this language from law enforcement that he suffered from sex addiction, that it is somehow not a hate crime, that it is not misogyny, many have responded saying, wait a minute, based on what you have studied, why do you think there is a desire by some to create silos here? When you look at the way in which the church has responded, what do you see happening? I think there's a couple of answers to your question. And the first one is a complex interwoven set of motivations, as you observed. And I don't know that we could expect law enforcement to have the, uh, the under, you know, I get to spend all my time reading about this stuff, right? Law enforcement have all kinds of things to do. So they don't have the expertise to understand the interrelationship between those two things. I don't know, given who they tend to be, whether they would even have the um, motivation or curiosity to try to understand it, but that's even a second level step. Part of the reason that the law enforcement people take this idea of sex addiction and go with it is because we've got this widespread uh, perception on the part of white people in America that racism isn't real. So here's sex addiction and, and oh, is it going to be racism? Well, no, no, it's sex addiction. And that's a nicely packaged thing that the law enforcement people can, in the way that they are reading it, it seems like a viable motive and it sits more comfortably in our world that privileges white people to the point where we can actually think that racism isn't a thing because we don't experience it, so it must not be real. I think that's one of the explanations. Obviously, his church doesn't perceive the attitudes towards sex as misogyny. Like That's not what they think it is. They think it's just what the Bible says, right? So they're not going to embrace a reading of this that weaves it all together either. It's much simpler for them to see it as, in their view, a perversion of their teaching on sex and morality than it is to see it as this deep-seated racism toward Asian Americans. And I don't think, to be clear, I don't think this is just on the part of the church. Going back to what we were talking about with the way that people want to separate things off into little packages, people do that with religion more than anything, right? Religion is is a label that we give to this way that certain people like to live in the world or choose to live in the world, whether their religion is Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism or Buddhism, right? We have all these boxes that we can put them in neatly and then we can, you know, all right, good, we're done with that. We can set it over here. But identity doesn't work that way right? It's all interwoven. And going all the way back to our earliest immigration laws, the way that Asian women were treated as immigrants presumed the high possibility that they were prostitutes. And we have this perception of these exotic women, and it plays out in our media. And so it's not just the fault of the church. This is something that's deeply embedded in American culture. And Asian Americans have been trying to tell us this for a really long time. But until something like this happens, those of us who don't see it on a day-to-day basis find it hard to make sense out of. But Asian American people have been telling us this happens to them for a really long time. The impulse that so many have, which is to try to make sense of an event. You know, when something traumatic happens and there's a loss of life and it threatens civil society, it threatens the order, there is this desire, one, to make sense of it. And there's also mm-hmm. a desire to maintain stability, to maintain kind of continuity of the system. As we look at and take 
closer kind of cues to hearing and understanding the history, the legacy that you're describing, I think it's also important to not just step completely away from the legacy of purity culture. You wrote in 2019 about extreme abstinence. What did and how did modern purity culture emerge and what did it look like? So this, again, though, gets back to this trying to separate things out and put them in simple boxes, because people, when they talk about religion, they want to talk about a little subset of theological beliefs, mm-hmm. and that's their category of religion. And they don't necessarily recognize the way in which religions are cultures, okay? Purity culture, first of all, is based in this idea that uh, sex before heterosexual marriage is sin, okay? First, some people will respond by saying, but Christianity's always believed that, and that is true. But the reason it's called purity culture and not purity theology is because it's so much broader than just that kind of belief or even a more developed belief than the idea about sexual purity. Purity culture, the thing that we're calling purity culture is the evolution of that belief structure into a whole cultural system kind of maybe culminating in the 1990s with a really widespread production of videos and books and meetings and conferences and father-daughter purity balls and bracelets that people would wear and all of these things in which particularly Christian school and Christian homeschool people were raised. And it carries with it much more detailed rules and regulations about what it means to be sexually pure. And this is another place where I think people who are outside this culture or who haven't read widely in this culture don't understand what I mean, because they say, well, okay, purity, fine, that's okay. But what purity culture teaches about this is, for example, that women who are too outspoken and talkative are drawing undue attention to themselves that results in men lusting after them. So it even comes down to when you're allowed to speak. It's not just don't wear strapless tank tops to school, although that's there. It's so much broader than that. Purity culture went along with a practice that was called courtship, which was this idea that young people shouldn't date or have much interaction with the opposite sex unless that interaction was overseen by the girl's father and with a plan toward pursuing the possibility of marriage. So this is this kind of complete gender dichotomy in how people live in the world and how they perceive other people, right? So suddenly men are taught that the only possible reasonable pure interaction you might have with a woman is to consider marrying her and having children with her. You also get out of this the thing that's called the Billy Graham rule. There were uh, all kinds of male religious leaders who made their personal rule that they wouldn't be alone in any space with a woman unless their wife was also there. And on one level, you can see why that might make sense to somebody. But at the same time, if you perceive of women as existing for the purpose of being pursued for marriage and children, then okay, that makes sense. But if you recognize that women have jobs and careers and they work in offices, the ability of a woman to pursue a career and be successful is tremendously inhibited if she can never be in any space alone with somebody who has authority, especially in a subculture that separates men and women and gives all the authority to men. So in theory, you can't really be around anybody with any authority if you're a woman. So purity culture in this period had really broad, expansive tentacles that shaped everything about how people interacted with each other in these churches. 
And you now have a number of people who grew up being shaped by this, who are writing books like Linda K. Klein and uh, talking about it on Twitter. In fact, I got an email this morning from a woman who just discovered that there's a whole world out there explaining this trauma that she had experienced growing up that she'd been trying to make sense of, but didn't know that other people had been impacted by it in the way that she had. Hmm. So much of what you're describing leaves women to view their liability as of being a temptress. And remember when in the last presidential election where there were some religious leaders who started labeling Vice President Harris as a Jezebel. Remember this? Yeah, what was that about? Well, Jezebel is a temptress in the Bible. Yeah, that's what that's about. And Vice President Kamala Harris's mother is Asian. Well, there's that, yeah. Mm -hmm. I hadn't even thought about that part yet. Yeah. The way to maintain purity in purity culture is for women to be confined to the private sphere at home, raising children, not out in public, being a physical public presence in the way that Vice President Harris is. When you read the the responses and you see how this story, the versions of the story unfolding, in a way, it was law enforcement echoing the language of sexual addiction that led to many raising their hands and raising their voices saying, hold on, wait a minute, this is not okay. And giving that context and the explanations of how faith and religious culture, as you're describing it, plays a role in shaping the way in which women, particularly Asian women, are viewed. What do you see as the biggest challenge now facing evangelical churches? I think the biggest challenge is the upending of knowledge and the ability to have conversations with shared information across a divide, conspiracy theories and anti-science views and all of that politicization of everything in our lives is the biggest challenge, not just for evangelicals, but for Americans. I think we're at a really, really dangerous point in our history and the voices are loud. So, you know, I'm watching people like Eric Metaxas who who went from being this, I don't know, Yale educated up and coming evangelical star who people thought of as an intellectual when he wrote this Bonhoeffer biography to becoming a kind of carnival barker for the Trump administration at their rallies. I look at uh, Pastor Jeffers in, in uh, Dallas and just kind of doubling down on the anti-masking, the, the idea that the coronavirus is a, is a conspiracy, um, is a hoax. You know, we've got this polling data that shows half of Republican men don't plan to be vaccinated. Well, there is, you know, there's a, there's a pretty strong overlap between half of Republican men and evangelicalism. In fact, I think it was actually half of Republican men who voted for Trump. So it separated out that small percentage of Republican men who did not. So these are going to be evangelicals. They have a exuberance about their own knowledge and their own expertise about things. Joe Schmo on the street is willing to go up against Dr. Fauci on the effectiveness of coronavirus vaccines. It's, it's mind-boggling. And I don't know how you get past that. We don't have a shared language. We don't have any sort of trust in a foundation of knowledge. I don't know. Dr. Julie Ingersoll is a religious studies professor at the University of North Florida and is the author of several books, including Evangelical Christian Women, War Stories in the Gender Battles and Building God's Kingdom Inside the World of Christian Reconstruction. 
Coming up after the break, my conversation with Chen Zing Han, author of the new book, Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists. If you missed any portion of this conversation, you can visit interfaithradio.org. To stream the episode, subscribe to the podcast, and sign up for our newsletter. You're listening to Inspired. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Releasing a book in the middle of a pandemic can be stressful. Without travel, authors struggle to find an audience, especially first-time authors. But that's not the experience of Chen Zing Han. The 30-something Bay Area writer has been busy. Her first book, Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists, was published in January, and her virtual book tour has been packed. Han's training as a chaplain comes through in her book and her conversational style. She's empathetic and an active listener. And the book is clearly a culmination of those kinds of conversations. They were sparked by a simple question. Where are all the Asian American Buddhists? What feels like home? It's such a complex question, right, for Asian Americans, I think, in particular. We don't have a lot of control over our geographic future. So I think I'm also trying to learn what it means to make home in different places. That's a really great kind of entree into Be the Refuge. The opening chapter of your book, the acknowledgments that you have at the beginning, you describe it almost like this symphony of acknowledging all the different people who played a role in helping you along the way. You reference one particular person, the angry Asian American Buddhist. And I wanted to ask you, when did you decide that it was time to write this book? When did you feel called to bring this book to life? Yeah, I guess you mentioned the angry Asian Buddhist. That's the pseudonym for um, a blogger whose real name was Aaron Lee. And he started that blog probably around 2009. It was really interesting to me because it was the first time I heard an Asian American voice speaking about issues of race and representation in American Buddhism. So he'd gotten the idea from angry Asian man, angry little Asian girls, but he really was focusing it on American Buddhism. And the thing was, as he was pointing out, so much of our media representations of American Buddhism, and even within the study of Buddhism in the West, it's really focused on white converts. Yet two-thirds of Buddhists in America are of Asian heritage. And so he was really pushing back against the underrepresentation and the misrepresentation of Asian American Buddhists. And then, you know, I kind of shelved it, forgot about it. But then in 2012, I needed a master's thesis topic. And it kind of came up again. I thought, where are all the young adult Asian American Buddhists? You know, I was in my 20s at the time. It felt like they must be out there, but how come I never see their voices? And so that really got me started on what I thought would just be like a small master's thesis. I thought no one would talk to me. And then 26 interviews later, interviews that were between an hour and a half and five and a half hours long, I realized like, oh, oh, the, this has actually struck a chord, you know? And then I had actually 63 more people who wanted to do interviews with me. 
I couldn't meet them in person because they weren't all in the Bay Area or Southern California. So I opened them up to email interviews, made that adaptive. And by the time I had 89 interviews, I sort of realized with a sinking feeling that this is way beyond the confines of a master's thesis. And these voices really need to be heard. And that started me on a rather long journey of turning this into a book. Well, that long journey and all of those interviews that you described, a couple things struck me. One, it it sounded almost like it was a, I don't want to say a coming of age book for you, but it almost sounded like it was a finding your spiritual connections and community that you were discovering in listening to these various experiences from Asian American Buddhists who had who had different experiences, all from you know very different places. Started to feel like you were knitting together this this framework of trying to understand and situate your own experience as an Asian American Buddhist. That's a beautiful way of putting it. I don't know if anyone has quite um, languaged it that way, but I think it's really true. It's funny. I was reading on the page and wasn't finding a kind of, you know, community that included Asian American Buddhists. So in a way, I suppose I was looking in the real world and finding bits of it here and there. And then I think maybe I returned to the page again and kind of imagined a kind of community, right? I interviewed these people one-on-one, but there was something powerful about weaving them all in. And it actually took a while for me to kind of work up the courage to weave myself in since it began as a more scholarly project. And there's such a convention of, you know, kind of having some objective distance, not that that's ever <laughs> I like really the possible. I like the voice. I like the voice you made. Yeah, I know. I hear you. I hear you. I totally get it. Exactly. Yeah. And actually a big inspiration, I think it was around 2014 was I went to hear Ruth Ozeki speak about her book, A Tale for the Time Being. And she is Asian American or rather, you know, Canadian, but also as a Buddhist priest. And I asked her afterwards if, you know, I had this thesis and I wanted to turn it into a book and she was very gracious and we later talked on the phone and the big piece of advice that really stuck with me was she really encouraged me to write myself into the book and make it an account of my curiosity. So I had this whole first iteration of the book with like 500 footnotes and I threw that one out basically and rewrote it from scratch for a more general audience and wrote myself into the book because I realized in a way a common thread in all of these interviews was myself and my own story and so the book ends up having kind of elements of memoir but also it feels a little like an anthology because there's other voices and I suppose it is very symphonic in the way that you describe. Symphonic I think is a great way to think about it because everybody has a different experience. You just said you did a master's thesis. What were you getting your master's in? In Buddhist studies at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. And GTU is actually a consortium of different member schools, mostly you know Christian seminaries. But there's also a member school called the Institute of Buddhist Studies, which was actually founded all the way back in 1949. So I took most of my classes there. And in retrospect, it was the perfect place. I actually can't really imagine another birthplace for this book because this is a tradition whose roots go back to the 1800s in America, among the first people to bring Buddhism to America, the oldest Buddhist institute in the United States rooted in a Buddhist tradition called Jodo Shinshu or Shin Buddhism. And unfortunately, when people think about American Buddhism, they very seldom think about Shin Buddhists. And I'm guilty of that myself. It was really only once I learned about this grad school and enrolled there that I started to learn about the 
vibrant community in the present and also the incredible strength and resilience of this community historically over multiple generations in the face of discrimination, you know, how they continue to practice Buddhism in the wartime camps when they were incarcerated. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. As I was reading these stories about the growing number of rallies and events that were happening outside of Christian churches that were identified as Korean or as Chinese, there was a part of me in the back of my head going, wait, where are the Buddhists? Like, where <laughs> where are the Asian Americans who I have met over the years who are associated and affiliated with different religious traditions that are outside of Christianity, but are absolutely a part of this religious landscape and have such a real history and experience with confronting anti-Asian sentiment and, and discrimination, ranging all the way back, you referenced World War II and the internment of Japanese, but even prior to then, the practicing of Buddhism was associated as being foreign and making one's loyalty and fidelity to America under question. Yeah, absolutely. Where are the Buddhists? You know, we are here. We are holding memorials and services in honor of the victims. I see a lot of Buddhist communities also reckoning more deeply with racism in our own sanghas. So the thing is, we're not often a trending topic. You have to dig for us to find us in the news, but we're there. And I think it's helpful to think about the numbers. You know, we're very much a minority in this country. About 1% of U.S. adults are Buddhist, according to a 2012 Pew Forum report. And again, of course, I say of those two thirds are Asian American. But as you pointed out, that's a really diverse umbrella. The continent of Asia is vast and huge. Not everyone even aligns with that term, Asian American. But a friend of mine just pointed out to me, you know, one of the victims of the Atlanta shootings, young Ayu, was a Buddhist. And, you know, for example, the 84-year-old Thai man who was attacked and died of his injuries back in January of this year, which Bhakti was a devout Buddhist. So it's actually been powerful for me in, the, in terms of, for example, which has death, the New York Times report on it showed a picture of his daughter at their temple um, in front of the altar. And this is a temple that my husband used to visit quite a lot. And actually, a couple of weeks ago, we went to the temple to also pay our respects so there's a way in which I think, you know, even the media, if it reports on religion at all, tends to report on Christianity, and it really misses some of the perhaps more grassroots or community efforts. But I am have been working with a few people um, to organize a more coordinated national memorial service in honor of the lives lost to anti-Asian violence. To hear my full unedited conversation with Chen Zinghan, I invite you to visit interfaithradio.org or subscribe to the podcast and catch it wherever you listen. Chen Zinghan is a Bay Area writer. Her first book, Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists, was published in January 2021 by North Atlantic Books. That's all for this week's show. A special thanks to Kevin McCarthy, this week's producer, our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. To learn more about us, I invite you to visit interfaithradio.org. Wherever you are, I hope you are well and you are safe, and that we'll see you next week. 
I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Thank you.